Well, I would invite you to look with me back to the Psalms again. We're going to go back to the 34th Psalm this morning. Psalm 34 for the message. Psalm 34. My subject this morning, if I could give you a title for the subject that we're going to consider this morning would simply be this, an essential in biblical Christianity. An essential in biblical Christianity. Now I say in biblical Christianity because out here in the so-called Christian realm, there is a lot that's taking place that's called Christianity that falls way short of biblical Christianity. Uh, and so I wanted to make it clear what I was talking about this morning. Uh, and so... We want to look at what is an essential in biblical Christianity. The Christianity that is made known, that is revealed, that is talked about, that is discussed in God's Word, in the Scripture, and essential in biblical Christianity. And so if you would look with me now, uh, back here in the 34th Psalm. I want to read the first 11 verses of this 34th Psalm. And my text is actually going to be just one verse this morning, uh, verse 11. But I want to read the first 11 verses of this Psalm and ask you to look in your Bible as I read from mine, Psalm 34, beginning with verse 1. David is writing and he says, I will bless the Lord... At all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble, or the meek, shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. And their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamped around about them that fear him. And delivered them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack, and they suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Join with me as we bow before the Lord in prayer. 
Oh, merciful, loving Father. We bow before you together, Lord. And Lord, it is my heart's desire that it might please you to take this that we've read from your word here this morning and make it a living, real word from you to each one of us. And that you by your spirit, O God, would speak to our hearts that which you would have us to know and understand and hear. Make it effectual in each of our lives. Use it in our lives, Lord, to make us what you'd have us to be, to more and more conform us to the image of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, how I pray that if there's someone here this morning that is yet a stranger to your grace, outside of the family of God, yet in their sin, estranged from you, having no hope without God in this world of sin. Oh God, it might please you this morning to speak to their heart. Draw them unto Christ. Draw them unto the Savior, Lord. Oh, Father, I just ask that your precious will be done in each one of our lives today for your honor, for your glory, and for our good. Help us, Lord, for we are a helpless people without you. We need you. Lord, we're thankful for your presence here. For we know you promised that where two or more of us have gathered in your name, you'd be present. And so we know you're here. Make your presence known to us. Speak to our hearts. Glorify your name in our midst. Is our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. and essential in biblical Christianity. Well, like I said, my text is actually from verse 11 where David speaks saying, Come, ye children, hearken unto me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Well, some of you may be thinking, Well, you sure do talk about the fear of God an awful lot. Well, I do. I do. Well, uh, kind of reminded me of uh, something that happened many, many years ago uh, before the Revolutionary War, actually, in this country. Uh, some of you have read some things by George Whitfield, some of his preaching, perhaps. George Whitfield preacher from England, came to this country back in the uh, early 1600s, actually, and he began to preach up and down the East Coast, uh, traveling by horseback and sometimes by foot, uh, and preaching outdoors uh, to multitudes of people, 
sometimes uh, to upwards of 20,000 people outdoors. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin once estimated that uh, George Whitfield's voice could be heard by as many as 30,000 people. Oh, he didn't have microphones back then. But God blessed him with a voice that could be heard outdoors. But at any rate, he, he traveled. And uh, on one occasion, he was in one area for uh, a certain amount of time. And he preached every message while he was there on the subject of you must be born again. You must be born again. After several messages, a lady approached Mr. Whitfield and she said, Mr. Whitfield, I don't understand. Why do you preach every message on you must be born again? Well, Mr. Whitfield looked at the lady and he said, My dear lady, I preach every message on you must be born again because... You must be born again. It's essential. And so I suppose I must borrow Mr. Whitfield's approach and say I speak so often on the subject of you must fear the Lord because you must fear God. You must fear God. It is an essential to biblical Christianity. I hope, if you haven't already, that before our time today is over, you'll see that and realize that, that it is crucial that you come to fear the Lord as the Scripture teaches that we must. Well, as I said, my text is verse 11, but, but in order for us to understand why David would say here, come ye children, hearken unto me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord, we need to understand what it is that would lead David to say such a thing as that that he says in verse 11. And in order to do that, we got to go back and look at the context, the immediate context in which we find the words that are found here in verse 11. And that would be the words that we read previous to it, of course, in the first 10 verses here. And in these first 10 verses, you find David beginning by just seeming to be overwhelmed and filled with a sense of praise and thanksgiving for a deliverance that he had experienced uh, from something very tragic, perhaps even uh, death. Uh, and indeed it was. Uh, and uh, for, for us to understand what David was talking about when he, when he said, I'll bless the Lord at all times and His praise will be continually in, in my mouth and making His boast in the Lord. And not only that, David not only himself was so full of praise, he wanted others to join in with him and praise and thank God for what God had done in his life. For he said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And he goes on to describe then the deliverance that God had blessed him with. Uh, and it just seemed to overflow from David's heart. Well, what was it that brought such a thing about in David's heart and in David's life that that so filled him with praise and thanksgiving. 
Well, we have to go back and look at uh, the circumstances that led David uh, to this. And so we have to go back to 1 Samuel. So if you want to take your time to turn there with me, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we'll look at the circumstances that uh, brought David to this place. Now, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're going we're gonna to actually look at, but while you're turning there, uh, some of you are aware of the fact that David, one of his very closest friends, was a young man by the name of Jonathan. Jonathan was David's really dear friend. And Jonathan just happened to be the son of King Saul, uh, Israel's first king. And uh, uh, Saul, King Saul, uh, was quite jealous of David. The reason being that uh, uh, Israel had grown to love David for the most part, more than they loved Saul. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, there were those that went about singing and saying, well, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that just, oh, Saul couldn't hardly handle that. Couldn't understand that. And, uh, and so he was angry and all. But, but Jonathan loved David and uh, and he learned that uh, his father, Saul, wanted to kill David. And he warned David that Saul, his father, was going to kill him. And so he warned him to run and to flee uh, in order that he might not uh, be killed by his father. And so this is what is taking place when we come to chapter 21 in First Samuel. David is actually uh, following Jonathan's advice and he's... He's leaving and he's uh, uh, running from Saul in order that he might not be destroyed. Let's look at this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Let's just read this. It says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David. or He, he came to meet David trembling, actually. And he said unto him, Why are you alone and no man with you? Uh, in other words, what are you doing here by yourself? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has commanded me uh, a business and has said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servant of the young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or what there is present. David was actually needing some bread. He was needing something to eat. And uh, he was being just a little bit maybe dishonest there in telling Ahimelech, the priest, that, uh, that the young men that supposedly were to be with him were at another place. And, uh, but at any rate, he was needing some bread, and that's what he was seeking. And so David answered the priest, and he said to him of a truth. Well, the priest said uh, in verse 4, uh, there is no common bread under mine hand, but there is holy bread, or hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread as is a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him the hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread. 
that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg of an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, Is there not here under thine hand a spear or a sword? David not only didn't have anything to eat, he didn't have any weapons with him. And so he was asking uh, the priest, is, is there any spear, is there any sword here? She says, for I haven't brought a sword or any weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest told him, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you slew in the valley of Elah. Behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there's not anything other than that. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. And so David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and he went to Achish the king of God. He flew actually to the Philistines for, for refuge, which is kind of a, a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, and the servants of Achish then said to him, to the king, is not this David king of the land? Did not they sing one to another of him in dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And by the way, they might have even reminded the king uh, by the way, this is the one who slew your, your hero, Goliath. <laughs> and David laid up these words in his heart and was afraid of Achish, the king of God. And so he changed his behavior before them. And he feigned himself mad, or he faked, faked himself, faked like he was mad in their hands and scrabbled or scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle or his spit fall down upon his beard. And then Achish said unto his servants, Lo, you see, the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So Achish wasn't afraid of David at all. didn't have any fears at all. He thought he was a man that had gone mad. All right. And so it tells us in that David there have departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And uh, some of you may recall that that's where David holed up and, uh, and hid from Saul was in this cave at Adullam. And uh, so this was the historic occasion of uh, David writing uh, this psalm, the circumstances that led David to write uh, this particular psalm. And uh, if you... Uh, in your Bible, have like I do in mine, uh, in this particular psalm, as in the case of some of the other psalms, uh, there'll be a title uh, at the beginning of the psalm. And it says, a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. This is not Ahimelech now, uh, the priest. This is uh, Abimelech uh, who drove him away. Now, the king's name was actually Achish, but uh, Abimelech is is a title uh, given to not just King Achish, but to many Philistine kings, just like Pharaoh was a title given to various uh, Egyptian kings, and Caesar was a title given to various uh, Roman uh, uh, emperors or whatever. Uh, Abimelech was a title given to various Philistine kings, and this was the case with Achish. And so 
Abimelech is actually a title which means my father the king is what the translation of it would be, my father the king. Uh, and it occurs uh, frequently in scripture. Uh, and it's not Ahimelech the priest, but it's Abimelech the king. Now, some have questioned uh, David's morality. You know, uh, was he uh, was he being sinful when he uh, actually lied in uh, his uh, behavior before the king? You know, in feigning uh, being mad, uh, he wasn't being honest, was he? He wasn't really a madman, uh, and so some of the commentators actually questioned his morality. Was he being sinful? Uh, well, you know, there are others that uh, would justify him in this because they would say, well, that's just good strategy in warfare, you know, and so it was okay. Uh, others uh, who believe that it doesn't matter you know, what your circumstances are, you know, you're to be truthful in in any circumstance, regardless of what the case might be. Uh, well, Calvin takes a little different approach uh, uh, in this. Uh, maybe he uh, takes a safe approach. I don't know, whatever. But he says this. He says, although God sometimes delivers his people, while at the same time they err in choosing the means or even fall into sin in adopting them, yet there is nothing inconsistent in this. That's what Calvin says. He says, The deliverance was the work of God, but the intermediate sin, which is in no account to be excused, ought to be ascribed to David. So I don't know. Uh, evidently, Calvin is, uh, is just uh, being safe there. But uh, David's object in this psalm is obviously uh, to celebrate God's mercy and grace and to encourage others to do the same. That's, that's the point of the psalm to me, I think, regardless uh, of this other. And the whole structure of the psalm would lead us, uh, I think, to suppose uh, that it was composed after David was already completely out of the danger and the, the peril that he faced you know, before uh, Saul and before the king. Uh, there of the Philistines. And there are those that uh, felt like he probably wrote the psalm there in the cave at Adullam. And that's very possible. If you look back there with me again, let's look back at uh, uh, 1 Samuel again. Uh, if we look down in chapter 22, how it begins uh, right after David left uh, King Achish says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. And there was with him about 400 men. So it's very possible that these his brethren that came and all these others that he talked about that looked upon him as their captain or their commander, these very well may have been the children that David was in reference to when he wrote this psalm saying, what? Come, ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you 
the fear of the Lord. Uh, he very well looked upon them as those that he had authority over because the literal translation is not children, but the literal tra- translation is come ye sons, come ye sons, uh, or those that a father would be in authority over. And so uh, although it can't be proved that David wrote this psalm from the cave there in Adullam, uh, it's, it's not anything that would be like a wild conjecture, you know, to suppose that it was because it's very likely that that's where he wrote the psalm. But this probably is the circumstances in which David found himself and from which uh, this psalm uh, originated. Uh, that the occasion of this psalm uh, fully justified uh, the, uh, the high praise that it employs is made known from the great peril in which the history shows David to have been and from the very remarkable prayer which David offered uh, on that occasion that we read earlier at the beginning of the hour. You remember that? Psalm 56? Psalm 56 is actually the prayer that David uttered at the very time that this took place when he was in peril. Let's look at it again, Psalm 56. Turn there right quick. We'll not look at the whole thing, but just the very beginning of it where he says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. My enemies would daily swallow me up, for they they be many that fight against me. O thou most high, what time I am afraid I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not fear what man or what flesh can do unto me. The very prayer that David uttered when all of this was taking place. And and all the circumstances that David found himself in that led to David writing the 34th Psalm where we are that leads him to say, I bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continue to be in my mouth. And then encouraging others to join in and praise the Lord with him. Well, let's look now specifically at my text if we can. Look with me at verse 11. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. An essential for biblical Christianity. An essential in biblical Christianity. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. David, as I said, was speaking as one having authority over those that he spoke to. Uh, there were those that, that recognized David as a king. Uh, even, even his enemies, even his enemies, if you recall from, from 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, there were those that told King Achish, this David is, is king over the land. They recognized him as a king. And, uh, 
And even some in Israel realized that Samuel had already anointed David as the king in Israel. And so some recognized him as a king, others as their commander, as we saw there in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. Uh, his brethren and all of those that gathered to him there at the king at the cave in Adullam uh, recognized him as their commander. What David said here is not something that is a foreshadowing of the Lord, but it is certainly a foretaste of things that the Lord Jesus himself would say. Don't you think? Uh, examples being uh, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, where Jesus says, Come, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Can't you almost hear that in, in David's words here when he says, Come, ye children. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. And Jesus saying, Come unto me, all ye that weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Or look with me in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said unto him, Zacchaeus, you're familiar with this story, aren't you? Zacchaeus, that wee little man that wanted to see Jesus, but he knew that he was so little in the crowd he'd never be able to see. And so he climbed up in a sycamore tree. But Jesus, walking along, came under the tree and he knew that Zacchaeus was there and he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down for today. I must abide at your house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Come down, Zacchaeus. Come down. Now then look at verse verse 9 and verse 10. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. All come. Jesus came, didn't he? And then in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38 of John chapter 7. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of, rivers of living water. Let him come unto me. Come unto me. Words of Jesus. A foretaste of it in the words of David. Oh, but sadly, sadly, natural man. Even, even religious natural man left to himself will not respond positively to such a gracious invitation such as Jesus has uttered in the words we just read. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to John, Jesus is speaking to 
some religious man in John chapter 5, verse 39. And he said to them, You search the Scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. You will not come to me that you might have life. And the reason, the reason that natural man will not come to him that they might have life, Jesus gives us in the next chapter, chapter 6 of John, both in verse 44 and in verse 65. Where Jesus says in verse 44, No man can come to Me. No man can come to Me except the Father which has sent Me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Natural man can't come. He, he doesn't have the ability to come unless he is drawn by the Father. And verse 65 he says it again. Therefore I said unto you, no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Natural man does not have the ability nor the power to come to Jesus unless it is given to him, unless he is drawn by the Father. Oh, but now listen. Let's back up just a little bit in John Chapter 6 to verse 37 and following. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose none but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Oh, there is hope. There is hope, isn't there? For all that the Father has given to His Son, Jesus said, will come to Him. All that the Father has given to the Son will come. Now, let's look at the last part of verse 11. The last part of verse 11 in our text. Where David said, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The essential and biblical Christianity. David said, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. There's an old Puritan by the name of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is that old Puritan that's probably the most familiar to Christians in our day and time than any other Puritan. As a matter of fact, uh, his commentary is probably on the shelf or on the coffee table of more Christian people than any other, uh, at least Puritan writer 
uh, I would imagine, uh, than there is because of his plainness, his clarity uh, of speech or of writing. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful commentator of the Bible he has been through the years and a blessing to so many people. And Matthew Henry, back in the 1600s, uh, wrote this uh, about verse 11. He said, David told them, what he expects from them. When he said, hearken unto me or listen to me, he was really saying, leave your play. Leave your toys and hear what I have to say to you. Not only give me the hearing, but observe and obey me. They must fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord is inclusive, he said, of all the duties of religion. He said David was a famous musician. He was a statesman. He was a soldier. But he didn't say to his children, I'll teach you to play a harp. Nor did he say to, I'll teach you to handle a sword or a spear or to draw a bow. He didn't say, I will teach you the maxims of state policy. But I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Which is better than all arts and sciences. Better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is it which we should both learn ourselves and teach our children the fear of the Lord. It's an essential in biblical Christianity. Now you may be thinking, is it really that important? Is it really that important? I, I haven't hardly even heard anything about it all my life. Well, that's probably true. Now, when I was younger, when I was a kid, I used to hear about it a lot. My grandparents used to talk about the guy down the road there, lived down there. He's a God-fearing man. He was a God-fearing man. I used to hear that kind of talk a lot. I don't hear very much today. Sadly, I don't hear it very much today. And you probably haven't either. Well, truth of the matter is, if I remember correctly, there is between 150 and 175 direct references. Direct references to the fear of God in Scripture. Between 150 and 175 direct references to the fear of God in the Word of God. Now what does that tell me? That tells me that to God it's important. And if it's important to God, 
better be important to me. And it better be important to you. Well, we don't have time this morning to look at 150, much less 175 references, do we? But let's look at just three. Just three. First of all, one in Ecclesiastes. Right at the very conclusion of Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book where Solomon, and by the way, Solomon could do this. He could spend his time that he did spending great sums of money and all the time that he wanted to searching for the meaning of life, for happiness, for joy, for pleasure, and he did. He did. Every avenue that was available, he took advantage of it. And what the conclusion he came to was that it's all vanity. Vanity of vanities, he said. Vanity of vanities. And listen to how he concludes his book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 13 of chapter 12. He says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Just fear God and obey Him. Just fear God and obey Him. It's the whole duty of man. Okay? Well, let's look a little more. And the three references I'm going to give you, they're all by Solomon. And the reason the three references I'm giving you are all by Solomon is because God blessed Solomon with wisdom above and beyond what any other man had. And we don't have time to look at why I'm saying that, but God gave wisdom an exceeding great amount of wisdom to Solomon. Book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Verse 7. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Here Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now that word beginning is a word that's better translated. And some of you may in, even have in the margin of your Bible or in the center, uh, center margin or not. A margin on the outside of your Bible may have, uh, in the place of beginning, you may have chief parts, or uh, maybe uh, rather than chief parts, you may have principal parts. Uh, but he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or the chief parts are the principal parts of knowledge. Now, the other reference is in the, uh, uh, the, ni- the, the ni- ninth chapter of Proverbs and in the 10th verse where he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the chief parts or the principal parts of wisdom. Now what do we mean by the chief parts or the principal parts? Well, Pastor Al Martin I heard years ago uh, do a series of messages on this particular subject and he illustrated 
these two verses like this, the, the idea of the chief parts or the principal parts. He says it's like the, the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Uh, the first things that we learn when we begin to get our education are what? Our ABCs and our numerals, one, two, threes, or up to uh, ten. And really, everything else we ever learn are based upon those chief parts, aren't they? Those principal parts. I don't care whether you study what you study. Everything else depends upon those basic principal parts. Solomon is telling us everything we're going to learn, all the knowledge, all the wisdom that we might gain or attain is dependent upon the fear of God. Now we're talking about spiritually speaking here. Spiritual knowledge. Spiritual wisdom. It's all dependent upon the fear of God. Now we could look all throughout both Testaments, old and new, and find Scripture after Scripture after Scripture where we're told to fear God, to fear the Lord. So just what is it? Just what is this fear? If it's that important. Just what is it? Well, there are two aspects to the fear of God. One of them being a fear of dread and terror. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. A fear of dread and terror is, is a fear of God. And there is such a thing where we should be afraid of God. If, if there's a reason for us to be afraid of God, then you need that fear. And there are those who really need to be afraid of God. But that's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. Let me give you a definition for the kind of fear we're talking about here. And the definition I want to give you is by Noah Webster. And I like it. Listen to what he says. He says, the fear of God is a holy awe or reverence of God and His laws, which springs from a just view and real love of the divine character leading the subjects of it to hate and shun everything that can offend such a holy being and inclining them to aim at perfect obedience to Him. I like that definition. It's reverence for God. It's reverence for God. Such an awareness of God's character as being holy and awesome that we stand in awe of Him, revering Him, having a fear of offending Him. Oh, this fear is made up of us having a biblical, a biblical concept of his character. You know, in our day and time, 
even so many professing Christians have got such a confused concept of God's character. You hear people talking about the old man upstairs. Oh, God help them. God help them. God is not the old man upstairs. He's not your good buddy. He's holy God. Holy God. If you have the fear of God, you have a right concept, a biblical concept of God's character. Not just who He is, but what He's like. It also involves having a confident assurance of his ever-abiding presence. A confident assurance of his ever-abiding presence. If we had time, we'd turn to the 139th Psalm and read there that there's not any place you can go where God isn't. You can't hide from God. You can't flee from God. Wherever you go, there He is. This great, holy, and awesome God is here. Now. Wherever you are. He's present. Never forget it. Never forget it. It also involves an unforgettable sense of how much we owe to His free grace. How indebted we are to His free grace. Oh, Justin has been preaching from the book of Ephesians. In those first two chapters, make it so clear just how much we are indebted to God's free grace. We owe Him everything. Everything. For life. For forgiveness. Our hope. Our hope is... Resting upon what? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Free grace. Free grace. Oh, and to realize that just leads us to love Him with all our heart, to trust Him with all our heart, and to obey Him with all of our heart. So is the fear of God important? You bet it is. Oh, to know Him 
who he is and what he's like. That's what the fear of God does. Makes God known to us. And Jesus said what in John 17, verse 3? This is life eternal. To know thee, the one true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is life. This is eternal life. To know him is life. If you don't know him, you don't have life. And if you don't have life, you're lost. And if you're lost, you're under the condemnation of God. And you're facing the wrath of God. And you don't have hope. Fear of God is essential. Last of all, and very quickly, I've got to say, Where and how does one get this fear of the Lord? Where and how do you get the fear of God? You can't buy it. There's not any store that carries it. You can't get it from the preacher. Parents can't hand it down to you. Only one place to get it. God's got to give it to you. God's got to give it to you. It's only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Now, we don't have time this morning to really look into this, because that's another message. That's another message. God puts it in the heart. That's what he tells us. But he puts it in the heart that's a new heart that he's given us. Which tells us that it takes place at regeneration. At the new birth. When God makes one who is dead in sin alive unto himself, like Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John 3, when he said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, just like George Whitfield was preaching so many years ago. You must be born again, because if you're not born again, you'll never have the fear of God. That's why you've got to be born again so that you can have the essential for biblical Christianity. You've got to have life. You've got to be made alive unto God by the power of God's Spirit. And only God can do that. You know, it's popular today for preachers to go around telling you, you've got to believe in order that you can be born again. Oh, they got it all backwards. You've got to be born again before you can believe. God's got to do the work. Dead man. 
dead man can't believe in God. He's not able. Believing in God is something that requires spiritual life. Oh, may God be pleased to quicken, to make alive those who are dead in sin. Draw them to Christ. Turn them from sin to the Savior for His honor and for His glory and for their eternal well-being. Come to me, ye children. Hearken to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. That's what David would say. I pray. I pray this morning that God has enabled me to teach you something about how essential it is for you to have the fear of God in your heart. How necessary it is. And that you'll seek the Lord with all your heart. Seek Him with all your heart. And that God will be pleased, if He hasn't already, to put His fear in your heart. It's not something to dread. It's something to desire. Well, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord.